0: Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to TFR for part two of the interview with Sheil Manat on fintech investing. In this segment, we will address questions including... What was the experience like at Fee Fighters, and how did that lead to an exit with Groupon? What are the major customer segments that are targeted within the fintech sector, and does 500 focus on startups that are serving specific segments? It seems that often companies may be misidentified as fintech. Do you have an example of something that people lump into the fintech bucket that from your standpoint does not fit? What are the major elements that you are looking for in a fintech company that increase your likelihood of investing? Have you found that the majority of innovation in fintech is happening in the major urban financial centers of the US? And also, do you think fintech startups should locate to these areas? And then we wrap up with Shields' final thoughts on the fintech category and some of the plans for 500 startups going forward. And as always, we will close out the interview with key takeaways and a tip of the week. Quickly, I wanted to mention that at an event I was hosting last week, one of my portfolio company founders came up to me and mentioned that I was nominated for Crane's Top 40 Under 40. Um, I have no idea who it was that that did the nomination, but if you are listening, uh, please shoot me an email. I'd love to have the opportunity to say thanks in person I very much appreciate the fact that someone was kind enough to take the time to do that and uh, to think of me, of all people. Okay. So with that, let's uh, jump into part two of this interview. Can you touch on just quickly what the the thesis was with Fee Fighters and what you guys were doing on the the payment processing side?
1: Yeah, sure. So we started out as a marketplace for payments, so a merchant came in, gave us a few pieces of information, and then the processors bid down for their business. and we had a bunch of the processors lined up and then the idea was originally we would be a marketplace for other small business uh, needs such as insurance and payroll. What we found out was that our customers tended to not be the small businesses that we started out for, so we thought that like we were we were going to help out mom and pop shops and cafes and that sort of thing. It ended up being that a lot of our customers were startups, and we had a ton of really big startups that used us to get their payment processor, and we took an ongoing revenue share on their payments. So that was actually a great business model. But we found that some of the processors that we connected them with weren't treating our customers fairly, and the technology side was lacking. So we built a payment gateway called Samurai and our own payment processing Uh, We became what's called a PSP, which allows you to instantly underwrite merchants. And when Groupon, we, we were about to raise a Series A, and Groupon initially approached us about potentially being an investor in the Series A, and then they said, hey, you know what? We're looking to build this technology that you guys have already built, primarily the payment gateway. It would take us a year before we could possibly get there. We'd love to acquire you. And after a bit of back and forth, we we agreed to the acquisition and uh went over there for a couple of years. Well, congrats on that exit. Yeah, thank you. It was great.
0: And while we're talking about customers, um could you touch on some of the major customer segments or or how you think about customer groups and what startups in the fintech sector are focused on on serving?
1: Sure. So I look a lot at the so we we talked about millennials already. Millennials are are one sort of Customer segment that is tr- has not been served well by banks, um, and the global financial crisis several years ago sort of exacerbated that. Um, so a lot of a lot of these startups are going after millennials. So you see um, companies like uh, like Digit, Sofi, in the insurance space, CoverHound, Personal Capital, a bunch of these companies going after millennials. So that that's one customer segment. There's another customer segment that is the unbanked or underbanked. And in my sort of investments, I've got a, a company into an uh, investment into a company called Finova Financial that gives loans to people based on their car title, but does it in a socially responsible way all online. Another company in that space is LendUp. They do a tremendous job going after the payday lending space with a new product that's all online and cheaper. Domestically, there's also, of course, the mortgage segment, which is uh, folks a little bit later in life. There's even uh, a company that called Support Pay that just goes after intermediating disputes between divorcees using payments because the biggest problem that, that we have is money. And you know, if you get divorced from somebody, you oftentimes don't want to talk to them ever. So this company Support Pay just makes is that intermediary, so you don't have to talk to your ex husband or ex wife at all. <laughs> wow. That's that's kind of a cool one. Um, and then, of course, there's the whole B2B segment. Um, there are a lot of companies that I really like that are lending to small businesses. So you see companies such as Cabbage, Bluevines, Vines, Talia, and that space that are lending to SMBs.
0: You know, at times, companies may be misidentified as fintech. You mentioned this earlier in the show. Um, do you have an example of something that people may lump into the fintech bucket that, from your standpoint, doesn't really fit?
1: You know, I, I actually think of fintech more broadly than, than other people, so I'm the wrong person to ask that question to. <laughs> um, there have been, let's see, so there have been people who came at me and said, hey, I've got a fintech company, and I thought, well, it's not, I don't know if it's, fintech is the first word that comes to mind when I think about your company. So, um, there, for example, one, uh, was a company that's uh, sort of trying to replace gift cards, but basically it was like buy money, but by uh, so instead of giving um, instead of giving a gift to a wedding, you give basically money through this platform. And I thought, yeah, that is that is fintech in a way. Of course, you're you're giving money, but um, not in the sense that you're disrupting traditional financial institutions. So that's just a different way to look at it. But, but broadly speaking, I like to think of everything as
0: fintech. I want my, my sort of circle that I can invest in to be as broad as possible. What about something like Acorn? Would you put that into, into the fintech bucket?
1: Absolutely. Um, they are taking money and investing it. So that is definitely fintech. They are, they are uh, sort of wealth management for millennials is how I would think about Acorns.
0: Sheo, what are the major elements you're looking for in a fintech company that may increase your likelihood of investing.
1: Sure. So, you know, we are seed stage investors for the most part, and at that stage, for fintech companies, there may not be that many proof points in terms of traction, in terms of real revenue. But uh, an important piece of fintech is regulation, and I like to see people who have good answers to the question of what do you do with regulation. So. Yeah, you know, The people that we back in fintech at 500 tend to be a little bit older and tend to have more experience. So we, we have a couple of folks. We have several folks who have previously exited fintech companies. We have folks who are lawyers. Um, it just tends to be people are a little bit further along in the sort of life cycle of a person that do fintech startups. Um, and then generally speaking, we look at all the same segments that you would tend to look at. Is this an amazing team? Is there a market that I believe is huge and a, or a potential to get to a huge market? And then is there some technology advantage? And then is this the right time? Is this the time for this company to shine, or this this type of company to shine? Um, other things for us, you know, we're an accelerator. Uh, our best leads, actually, we get a lot of leads from other VCs, VCs who look at a, uh, at primarily Series A stuff, and they have a company coming to them that's too early. They say, hey, Shiel, you should take a look at this company. I really like it, but it's
0: too early for me. So that's that's where I tend to get a lot of my great leads. I was just looking at a great fintech deal from Chicago, serial founder with a uh, big exit in his background.
1: Yeah, sounds good. And happy to get any any uh,
0: referrals uh, from you on, on the fintech side. I'll keep that in mind. You know, have you found that the majority of the deal flow and the majority of the the fintech innovation is happening in in major urban financial centers in the U.S. And do you think fintech startups should locate in these areas? You know, um, yes, I, I I do find that the majority of innovation is
1: happening in these big centers and it's sort of if you look at fintech funding and look at where the innovative companies are it's San Francisco number 1 and uh then New York number 2 and LA number 3 uh and then of course that's just in the US and of course there's a lot going on in London Singapore Hong Kong but you do see most of the innovation still happening in the bay area i don't think that you need to relocate here it is very helpful because the money is here in in the bay area and uh, a lot of investors are lazy and don't want to travel or don't want to look at companies outside of the Bay Area. So, so that's, that's one piece of it. Uh, the other piece of it is you know, when we bring in companies from all over the world here, uh, so about a third of our companies are from California, a third from outside of California but in the U.S., and a third are international that we bring into the accelerator. And we find that people just by being in the Bay Area feel like there's, the pressure is on to work harder faster and so so i kind of like the pressure that that gives and of course being an accelerator is even more that you're you're sitting across from somebody who's getting a ton of work done getting uh staying in the office late whatever that pressure sort of continues on uh and and spreads across the batch
0: Hmm. contagious uh contagious work habits huh
1: that's right yeah And, and you know especially during the four months that the companies are in the accelerator, they want to show a tremendous amount of growth. And you find companies, people just working more harder, smarter than they, than they ever have before. And it's great.
0: Awesome. Any other thoughts on financial technology startups that we didn't cover that you would like to touch on?
1: No, I think we covered a lot of the great topics in FinTech. So,
0: yeah, I think we did a great job. Shield, can you talk about what you're currently most focused on at 500?
1: Sure. So it's three things. So we just ended, um, we just had an accelerator batch that ended uh, last week, uh, which was the second week of May. And uh, I'm really focused on helping these companies navigate their sets of term sheets. Fortunately, many of my companies are in the luxurious position of having multiple term sheets. So trying to help them sort through which companies to take investments from and that sort of thing, which investors are are value add and and that sort of thing. So that's my number one focus is helping my existing portfolio companies. My number two focus is bringing on new portfolio companies. Um, We have another batch starting in July. Would love anybody who's listening to contact me, at 500co if you have a company that you think is interesting. Um, I'm focused on bringing in the next cohort of 10 to 15 companies. And then number three, I'm fundraising for my fund. It's a $25 million fund and I have raised a bunch of it, but always looking to bring on interesting and uh useful parties uh into the investment.
0: Yeah, how's the uh the fundraising going? Is it uh are you just targeting retail investors or what's the the collection of folks that you're discussing the fund with?
1: Sure. So I'll start out by saying broadly this might be interesting to people. A lot of people have talked about there potentially being a slowdown coming in fintech on the seed stage. And what what I'm seeing is that there's been so much interest in my fund that there will be capital at the seed stage. And when there's capital, I don't think there'll be a slowdown. So good companies will continue to get funded in this environment. Um, but in terms of who I'm seeing as investors, I've got some fantastic founders. So founders of three or four fintech unicorns or LPs in my fund, um, I've got some strategics, so uh, some banks are very interested in my fund, and then just general, generally speaking, there's been so much interest in fintech that uh, I get contacted out of the blue all the time from folks who are interested in investing. So it's been, it's been relatively easy so far. Knocking on wood, um, I think that I'll probably end up surpassing the twenty five million dollar mark that I that I set out to.
0: Good for you, man. I I hear a lot of. A lot of sob stories from investors that are not hitting their targets on the fundraise side. So uh, good on you for having a a compelling thesis and and plenty of folks that that are interested in partnering. Thanks, Ben. And uh, if we could address any topic in venture on the program here, what topic do you think should be addressed and who would you like to hear speak about it? Ooh, good question. Um, Have you done one on frontier
1: tech investing?
0: Not specifically we've done a little VR stuff we've done a little space stuff but um, you know Frontier can be can be defined as, as that sort of stuff it can also be defined as sort of the the heavy industry ag stuff
1: yeah I think you should do both and I, I can connect you to folks on the Frontier side have you talked to folks at Rothenburg? no not yet I'll make some connections there uh, and I got my buddy Greg Castle who uh, was an early investor in Oculus I think he'd
0: be he'd be an interesting one to talk to as well Awesome. I'll make some connections for you. And finally, Shiel, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you?
1: Uh, shoot me an email, shiel at 500.co. Uh, I know I'm a hard to get a hold of. Feel free to
0: try me multiple times until you get me, unfortunately. Well, Sheel, it's always good to connect. Uh, next time in your, you're in Chicago, hit me up. we Will do. Look forward to talking soon. Likewise. Take care, Nick. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Always so great to get a chance to catch up with S.H.I.E.L.E. Really good information on fintech here. Let's recap the key takeaways. Key takeaway number one is called the categories within fintech. Today, S.H.I.E.L. talked about how he segments out the very broad fintech sector, which is really an umbrella term that includes many subsectors. Those segments included lending, insurance, money transfer, capital markets, blockchain, personal finance management, and crowdfunding. Each of these segments is really like its own sector, with differences in channel dynamics, customer segments, regulatory, and types of financial institutions. And recall that with each company, SHIELD considers whether it's a disruptor or an enabler. Disruptor is clearly disrupting existing financial institutions, while enablers sell to financial institutions. Okay, key takeaway number two is called experience matters. One of the key differences that SHIELD looks for in fintech startups versus that of others is experience on the team. There are significant regulatory and commercial challenges that fintech startups encounter. Because of this, often the best founding teams are a bit more experienced in the sector and have thorough answers to those challenges. And in terms of sourcing, Shield mentioned that many of his best leads come from Series A VCs that have seen a company pitch, but they are clearly too early for that VC. 500, of course, is a seed stage investor, and often invests earlier than many venture firms. Okay, and key takeaway number three is called factors contributing to growth in fintech. The term fintech is still relatively new and one that has a lot of buzz around it. During the interview, Shield did a Google Trends search for fintech and found that in December of 2013, the term ranked 4 out of 100, and now it ranks 100 out of 100. While some of this increase can be explained by the emergence of the term itself, it is clearly a much-talked-about sector. And the amount of capital deployed into fintech has increased from $2 billion in 2010 to $20 billion last year, a 10x increase in only five years. Shiel also mentioned exits, which have climbed significantly by a factor of four over the past four years. And Shiel had some great insights when discussing the history of fintech, he talked about how technology trends go with early adopters of technology, and early adopters of technology tend to be younger people. And fintech's progression followed the needs of these younger folks who started out wanting to communicate, then desiring the ability to transact, and ultimately getting access to financial services. As we reviewed the opportunities going forward, she'll sees big opportunity in the developed world but even bigger in the developing world. There are about 2.5 billion people with smartphones today, and there will be 5 billion people with smartphones in five years, the majority of which will be individuals in the developing world that are underbanked or unbanked. And as Sheil articulated, two of the major customer segments that he's following are millennials and the unbanked. I can imagine much more disruption in the developed world to better serve millennials, and a tremendous degree of low-hanging fruit in the developing world to serve the unbanked. Okay, let's wrap up with a tip of the week, and this week's tip is called discounting inertia. In today's interview, we spent some time discussing payments and the lack of innovation therein. The most common medium used in payments is the credit card, which is technology that was developed in the 1960s. This antiquated technology is fairly efficient but also easily stolen. Shiel cited the ease in which a magnetic strip on a credit card can be copied. And of course, one can always write down the information on the front and back of a card and immediately have a way to use that card illegally. And outside of credit, transactions are still dominated by fiat money, a form of currency developed in 11th century China. In 2016, the United States Treasury is projected to spend over $730 million just producing paper and coin currency. And this number does not capture the amount of value that is lost due to counterfeiting. Clearly, there has been a major lack of progress in the currency and payment transaction sectors, which only results in lost value. So the key question here is, why such a lack of progress? Is innovation to blame? I don't think so. Many alternatives to credit cards have been developed over the past 30 years that, in principle, are superior to plastic. And even replacements for the fiat currency system have emerged that are tremendously more efficient, less susceptible to piracy, and cost very little to maintain, namely the development of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. So if options exist, then why the lack of adoption? I think the explanation is inertia i.e. a resistance to change. There are many industries that experience significant inertia, and the degree of inertia is impacted by the types of stakeholders, the number of stakeholders, the ideology of stakeholders, the range of decision makers within each, whether one is dealing with the enterprise or consumers, the amount of infrastructure that exists, the switching costs, regulatory and government influence, and many other factors. In the example that Sheila and I talked about today, one must consider the credit card companies, the retailer, the payment processor, the point-of-sale hardware manufacturers, and of course, the consumer. In a two-sided marketplace with many intermediaries, is there a hugely compelling reason for why players on each side of the transaction are going to change? Does new technology exist that allows for a better method? Can extraneous layers in the value chain be disintermediated? Often with new technologies, we hear about the killer app, referring to the application of a technology in a way that provides huge value for that specific task. And finding this killer app is often a gateway which allows a technology to expand to many more applications and use cases. In a way, the killer app can function as a Trojan horse, Laying the foundation for broader market applications. As I think about the credit card example, the two major stakeholders in any transaction are the purchaser and the seller. And the purchaser's most significant needs include efficiency of use, i.e., how fast can I complete this payment, and security, i.e., how well is my information protected. And the seller's most significant need is reducing fees, i.e., How can the cost per transaction be lowered? If a payment application exists where speed and security are particularly painful for the consumer and transaction cost is particularly high for the seller, the right ingredients are there for a killer app. And if buyers and sellers get comfortable with the new technology in applications such as these, it will begin to expand to other applications. Look at a company like PayPal that was able to find its killer app by providing a payment mechanism to eBay users, eliminating the significant pain of the check-by-mail standard. After completing a transaction via eBay, many of these consumers became comfortable with PayPal and began using it for a variety of transactions. Look, resistance to change can be tough, and a startup founder may not have all the answers for how they will deal with inertia but understanding its sources is critical. While we can imagine a future of ubiquitous flying cars, cryptocurrency, and human intelligent AI, technology is not all that's required to attain these realities. So rather than discount inertia, respect it and look for that killer app, Trojan horse, or foothold that best exemplifies the value of making the switch. All right, that will wrap things up for this time. Thanks so much for joining me. We've got a really special one coming up with my favorite blogger, Tim Urban, who writes over at WaitButY.com. We're going to be talking SpaceX and Elon Musk, and it's one of the more fun discussions I've had in a long time. So I hope you join me for that one. And until then, over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. See you again soon.